podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to Uncovered with Barat Sundarason and Jared Kimber on the 99.94 Network. Welcome to another episode of Uncovered with uh, Jared Kimber and Barrett Sundarason, who's not here. Uh, he's I've given him I've given him the week off. He needs to be rested and rotated. Uh, for those who haven't read, he's uh, put out a really good article about some of the racist treatment he's had in Australia, which I think he wrote for the Age. I don't think it's on Cryptos, but I'm sure if you go, well, I retweeted it, but I'm sure you can also find it via his uh, Twitter account as well. Um, but I've given him a rest, and he'll be back on next week. But essentially. I'm going to talk about exactly the same thing I was going to talk about with him, except with less Barra uh, than I would normally have. Because I, I just had like a sort of a laundry list of things that that I wanted to talk about here. And if, the first one is the boundary catches. I'll probably make a video about this because there's a really interesting uh, law quirk uh, that does need to be, um, no, the best way of putting it, uh, it needs to be discussed at the very least of what happened with that catch. But if you haven't seen the Michael Nisa catch, it's the catch that where he, he, gets a hand on the ball inside the boundary. He then jumped outside the boundary. And when he's outside the boundary, he gets off the ground, catches the ball, and then throws it up in the air, goes back in the ground and catches it. It's less so much about that. I, I've, I will do a whole video about some of the interesting stuff. There's a lot of people who I think have, who are saying things like, well, nothing should happen outside the boundary in, in cricket games. And the most interesting thing about that is I don't think people have worked out how hard it is to actually work out if someone's, over the boundary physically um, on a curved ground, which is massive. It's a big, big space. Uh, we don't have cameras all the way around the grounds anyway. So there is then the other argument, of course, uh, that you should be able to take the ball, throw it up in the air, go outside the boundary, then come back in, and that's fine. Um, and there's all these different ways of looking at it. But I think the most interesting thing is that those, those really good questions have come up and uh, really good discussions have come up on Twitter um, in some places about this particular catch. But the very basic thing is that this isn't a new catch. This has happened before, and that very few people actually understand that the laws have already been tweaked around these sorts of boundary catches. And the one thing that we see again and again in cricket is that so few people who play the sport, write about the sport, um, sometimes administrate the sport, uh, watch the sport, actually know about the laws to begin with and also the playing conditions on the side of that as well. And it's something that I found very, very fascinating. And one of the reasons, of course, is that cricket laws are absolutely impenetrable is probably the wrong word, but complicated. Um, They are written in not quite a a legal uh, way, but you know, maybe more towards, you know, like a contract is written rather than uh, the way that we would, you would talk in, in, in an instruction manual, for instance. And I, I've been asking around some of my friends, I've been sending some messages to, to people I know. And, and these are, these are people who don't work in the media, just but big, big cricket fans, some of which have played cricket for 30 and 40 years, you know, some absolutely obsessed with the game. It, it's incredible. I didn't get a person who got back to me who has actually read the law book from beginning to end, let alone the playing conditions as well. I, and it's something that, you know, you hear commentary uh, quite often. And I've I've read the law book. I probably don't read it as much as I should. It's one reason I love having Barrett on this podcast, uh, which which is 
uh, would have been a good one for this particular topic is because Barra is an umpire, which is very, very rare um, amongst people who work in cricket. You know, there's a lot of people who work in cricket who are players, but being an umpire is a, you know, I don't know, he'd probably be one of the more younger umpires if I'd ever come across him in a game. <laughs> Most of the umpires I've ever played with are, you know, uh, dads, granddads um, who who come to the game um, to help out, even in senior cricket, you know, that come to get their uh, glass of sherry and uh, give a couple of dodgy LBWs. But it is one thing that I'm not saying that all other sports out there are have a high percentage of people having read the playing conditions or, you know, the, the rule books or the laws, depending on the sport that they have. But a lot of those other sports are a lot more simple to understand. And, you know, when it comes to laws and playing conditions, ours is already complicated and then no one is, is uh, is reading them either. Anyway, I'll do a full video on the Michael Nisa catch coming up because I, as I said, I do think there's a, a weird little loophole which I'm sure the MCC will be annoyed at for me even bringing up. But I do think it is worth looking at um, going ahead. But there's some other videos I've been working on as well. One of the others is on Chris Green, who is uh, in the title of this video. Um, uh, Chris Green is a really, really fascinating player. I think Sam Babal has just written a piece on Craig Info today. Uh, I only got to read about half of it before I had to come up here and do this. But, um, you know, about the fact that T20 cricket, in order to survive, needs... Uh, international cricket going ahead and bilaterals. I'm not sure it does, um, but it's it's a really interesting argument from from Sam. But you know, uh, looking at some numbers as well, and also looking at the way the cricket is growing, which is something I do believe in very strongly. But the interesting thing is he talks about Trent Bolt, and he talks about Trent Bolt being a you know people not getting massively upset when he decided to do what he did, which is a big d- change from what we've seen beforehand. You know, almost now the the outcry when a player decides to put club over country is so small at this point that you know it's barely makes a ripple but there's a really other interesting player i think of recent times who is worth talking about and that's chris green from australia now if you don't know who chris green is that's okay very few people do but one of the reasons i find chris green so fascinating is because chris green was a t20 player almost full uh, all the way through he's probably what i would refer to as a spoiler bowler um if you haven't seen him he's an off spinner kind of like a weird hybrid of something between Johan Bota and Sunil Narayan. So he had a bit of Johan Bota's action, but also a little bit of his natural athleticism, but then used some of the skills of Sunil Narayan as well. So, you know, a sort of an off-spinner who doesn't just bowl off-spin and made his way as an opening bowler, opening spinner in Australia, Big Bash originally. He's then played in Middlesex, um, played in the CPL. He played one game for KKR, played in the PSL a handful of games. So not a top-level IPL, uh, well, sorry, not a top-level franchise player, but he's touched the top level and sort of in that middle tier, partly because he's probably not quite good as a batter consistently. can hit the ball quite well, but not good as a batter consistently, but a very good fielder um, and a lovely person. You know, sometimes these people get talked up a little bit, but he's one of the person I hear the most um, uh, positive stuff from people who work in cricket about. So... The reason I'm bringing all this up is he's 29 and recently played his first uh, and made his debut for New South Wales in first-class cricket. I think that was his first actual first-class game, although he might have played some Red Bull games just before that coming up that weren't um, scheduled as first-class games. It's a really interesting thing that that hasn't been made a bigger story of, that you have this person who at the age of 29 was seen as almost completely a T20 player. Like, if you would have asked me, I would have assumed that 
not that he'd made the decision not to play first class cricket, because I think we've seen with, with a, you know, a few of the T20 specialists, sometimes you just see where your skills are more valuable um, and you go towards that. But th- it would have, I would have been very surprised if he would have um, changed his game in any way in order to play first class cricket. And with, with Green, there's a lot of interesting things that happen around be, uh, being in COVID, playing some club cricket in England, um, playing more with the red ball. And also when he started to play more with the red ball, he actually started, in his mind, started to bowl better off spinners. And so that actually helped. But but the truth is that we've seen so many um, uh, situations in cricket where people are going away from red ball cricket. And here we have a totem in the other direction, a player who probably looked at, at his career and went, well, um, how am I going to maximize my earning? Perhaps I grew up in, in his case, and I'm pretty sure he did, you know, wanting to be a first-class cricketer and actually going back to that. And we haven't heard really anyone talking about those sorts of things at all this sort of uh, reverse malachi um, to use a saying from <laughs> from from happy days i think it is but it's a very common phrase in australia but it is sort of that's what it is right so you know it's going the complete other other direction you know um to swim a salmon a salmon the ones who swim upstream i didn't think i'd need barrett here for um salmon stuff but again it's just something that i think is worth having a look at i think a lot of the uh, talk about International cricket, first class cricket, test cricket, you know, franchises, what what's happening, uh, you know, with the IPL owners is one movement. But there's actually going to be a lot of players who don't quite fit in at that top tier, right? And let's say the IPL owners buy all the franchise leagues in the world, which is, I suppose, a possibility. Um, you know, there might be some leagues that are held, held over, but, you know, at least the vast majority of them, they're going to want the very best players to be playing for them. And that makes sense. And, you know, we'll expect to see more players like Trent Bolt and players develop like Dio Brevis, right? Fine. But what about that second tier of players? If there is still money to be made from uh, test cricket, from first-class cricket, from, uh, you know, list A cricket, internationals, bilaterals, all these other things, those players are still going to have to be there. And it's the one thing that I don't think is being talked about enough, which is that a professional cricketer, is someone who has a, at best, probably 12-year earning window, right? There's the odd Brad Hodge story out there. Um, and, you know, obviously, incredible players are going to start very young and probably finish into the late 30s. But most players, even above average talents, are probably going to have 12 years where they're at, you know, sort of peak earning um, capability. These players are going to go where the money is. And sometimes the money isn't going to be necessarily where we think it's going to be. It's going to be in random positions. And I think Chris Green's um, case, you know, it's maybe one of the first times we've seen that. But I don't think it'll be the only time we'll, we'll see situations like that. You know, for instance, county teams still have money, right? And you still get paid, uh, you know, a good a good money to play first-class cricket there, and obviously, Australia is another place that has that. But there will be other opportunities that will come up from that. Not to mention that, you know, there will be there will be times when perhaps being an international player in one country is worth roughly the same amount of money as being a, you know, mid-range um, T20 player playing for all these different franchises around the world. That's the one thing that we ha- we don't really know what that next step is. But I do think that Chris Green and what he has done is a very, very interesting thing. But because he's not a hugely well-known cricketer. Um, In fact, if you're busy Googling him at the moment, I don't blame you. Um, uh, Because he isn't that level of player, it doesn't get the kind of press, but also it is going against the narrative a little bit. And I, it's something I've been looking at 
for a little while. And I, I remember Chris Rogers, I think it was Chris Rogers, who was, uh, when the Big Bash was on, went to New Zealand to play first-class cricket. And I don't think he made a big amount of money from it. I, I would have thought that they probably played his expenses and he maybe got a, a small stipend on top of that. But one of the reasons he did that is just because he wanted to keep himself in federal, um, you know, from a first class and a test um, uh, playing, um, uh, um, you know, area. These sorts of things are interesting. And it'll be, it, you know, whether there is enough money to sustain them and whether, you know, uh, uh, Chris Green uh, comes in, plays a couple of games for New South Wales, uh, then ends up taking a bunch of wickets in the Big Bash and is a place in the PSL or, or the IPL and he doesn't need those anymore. That's also a possibility. But the one thing that I have been talking about quite a lot, and I mentioned this, um, not in this context, but quite across the board, is there's like three or 4,000 professional cricketers in the world, They're men cricketers, and then a few more hundred women now as well. They are all going to need, want and need jobs, and they are going to follow where the money is. The money won't always be where we think it will be, especially as this sort of you know, capitalism and free market comes into the game. And it's a really interesting thing to watch going ahead. There are a lot of West Indian cricketers who probably make more money playing club cricket in America uh, than they do playing in the CPL. Um, there's a very, very interesting um, conversation we had in the next five years to be able to work out all the different strands that professional cricketers have available to them. All right, I will uh, play a quick app. And then we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about South Africa's batting. Uh, oh, a couple of things about the Indian team as well. Um, and the PCB coming up next on Uncovered. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, we have, oh, I want to talk about the IPL and players being rested, potentially anyway, for India's World Cup campaign. I'm really interested to see how this plays out politically because if I owned an IPL franchise, um, there's a part of me that thinks that my franchise is worth more money if India win major international tournaments. Like, I get that. From from an ownership perspective, um, I could see how, I could see how, if let's say India won, I don't know, five of the next eight international tournaments, you know, put in a Champions Trophy, shall we, um, you know, a T20 uh, maybe that you know the women win the Commonwealth Games, whatever it may be, you know World Cups, um, all those sorts of things. I would assume that if India had that kind of run, which we've never really seen from them, we've seen them have kind of similar runs over the last few years in bilaterals at times. They've never obviously done it when it comes to the silverware side of cricket. Uh, if they do get to a point where they can actually do that and suddenly start winning all those things, does that not help with the overall brand of uh, the IPL? Um, and gets you to a point if you own an IPL franchise where all of Indian cricket is worth more money and so that therefore your team is worth more money. I can actually understand that argument. I haven't heard that one said publicly, but if I was chatting to an IPL owner, um, I would put that to them. But the other side is that I am paying these players to play in my team. I've paid exorbitant fees. Uh, I am, uh, you know, 
at any stage, I have to, um, you know, make sure that my team is the best that it can be. That is why I've paid the money. I want the team to have as much, much success as possible, not just from my ego, but f- to build the brand of the franchise, especially early on in the franchise history, you know, in the franchise history, especially some of those teams like Delhi, for instance, who haven't had that level of success. It's a really interesting concept of how this is going to work because this is the reason at the moment that the 100 and the Big Bash are not, um, uh, involved with owners. There's other more technical reasons. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I've talked about this yet publicly, but you know, the whole thing about the hundred being, um, you know, I know IPL owners have talked to the ECB or teams directly about buying um, hundred teams, and there's like lots of little problems. Like, okay, well, they get the oval. But Surrey is still there at that same time. So how does that actually work? You know, are they renting the facilities? Are they just using it for game days? How does training work? All these sorts of little things, which which is fair. Um, and we've already seen those sorts of things play out in the, in the IPL at times. And obviously the IPL has sort of swept up everything. This is almost the first time that we are seeing uh, the opposite, which is the, the idea that the Indian team might be slightly more important. And I also wonder... If this is partly because of there would be little um, there would be little blanks, I'll put it this way: I wonder if this is in part because India has been unsuccessful at the major tournaments for a little while now, which is a really interesting development considering how good they've been at, in bilaterally. But also, it's just just because it's a home World Cup. Like, is this something we wouldn't see if this World Cup was in England or New Zealand or South Africa or wherever, right? It's, it's a really interesting thing. And then there's another World Cup coming up. And then, there's, I mean, there's a World Cup every five minutes. They kind of lose their meaning at a certain point, the phrase World Cup, when you've got so many of them. But hey, welcome to cricket. That's the interesting thing going forward, whether this is a one-off. And the other thing is how many of those team owners will actually pull rank? Um, I know, you know, if I was working for one of those teams as an analyst, I would be thinking, nah, um, that's not what I want to be doing. Um, uh, so I'd be pushing really hard from that perspective. But the whole thing, I find it a really interesting uh, topic. The other thing that came out when it was uh, about the Indian team uh, was that uh, Hardik Pandya, and I think I had this question on, on a wagon wheel last week, or I had it somewhere, so someone sent it to me anyway, um, You know about India backing their youth uh, players. You know they, They've made this uh, new squad I still don't think it's as progressive as perhaps it could be when it comes to attacking in T20. I think India can have far more uh, attacking and, and dynamic squads than they picked, but this is clearly a step in that sort of direction. And Hardik Pandya talked about them being backed, and I get that, and it makes a lot of sense. The thing is, I don't think the problem is that the Indian team necessarily has been too quick to drop people. Uh, there might be some players who are on the fringe who haven't been given the right opportunities you know you, you sort of a San, Sanjay Samson type situation but I, I don't think that the problem is that the young players haven't been backed it's that it's the entire environment of Indian cricket makes it very hard for you to develop a player at the international level and even for an IPL player there is a big step up from being an international player an IPL player and being a top level international player so the average international game now at T20 cricket and I'm talking about the top 12 or so teams who play it is of a lower quality than the IPL. But once you get to that top six teams, it's actually a big step up again. And, and I think from that, uh, you know, so the IPL sort of sits in this middle 
ground. But also when you're playing for your IPL team, even if you're facing Rabada or, you know, going up against Rashid Khan or, you know, um, a bowling to Andre Russell, you're still doing it in a way where it's a throwaway game. Those IPL games are almost by definition throwaway in that it happens on one night, three nights later, you get another game. And in between some other young Indian players done something good or bad or whatever. The difference with the international cricket and the way that Indians follow the international team, of course, is there's no games in between. And that narrative sticks, right? And once you fail as an Indian player, you know, it's like, it's the old death bowling thing. I've never, ever written about a death bowler uh, (laughs) where I've, where I haven't praised them for being very good at what they're doing and had someone say, I can't believe you're praising them. I saw this person get hit for 25 rounds or this person's always terrible when I turn on the TV. The truth is, if you're a death bowler, we've all seen you being hit more than you've had top balls. Even Boomerah, to a certain extent, is part of that, right? And, and even you know, even Malinga has, had, to- has had, had times where he got hit for runs. I think Cameron White once hit Malinga, if I remember correctly. Not exactly the name that you're probably expecting me to say there. So, from that perspective, in in that's kind of uh, that kind of the way that we look at death bowlers is very similar to the way that we look at Indian international players, and in that it, everything is kind of remembered a lot more, and it's all dramatized on both sides a lot more. And so, you then have the place of where someone gets, uh, you know, a really really high end um, a star. It, you know, they play a couple of games, everyone talks them up, and then they have a couple of poor games after that, and it all dips back down again, and suddenly they're the villain. That is the side of things I think is trickier, rather than what Hardik is talking about, which is the team backing those other players. I can see the Indian team. I don't see the... Uh, and I, I would go back to even Brad Coley and Ravi Shastri, even if I didn't agree with the T20 tactics or their, their limited overs tactics that much. I didn't see them as... Uh, reactionary. I didn't see them as um, being bad for the players, but it's the entire structure. And I think that's the thing that's uh, far more interesting to me. But I'm just going to have a a quick break here. And then after the break, uh, we will talk about, uh, oh, I want to talk about the PCB and the public spat over splat. I suppose it is a splat at this point over there as well. Beautiful. All right. So we'll go on. uh, We're on Uncovered here with Jared Kimmett and Barrett Sunderason. Barrett is not available today. Um, uh, he's uh, taking a knee. Taking a knee? That's not, I suppose he just wrote about racism, so maybe, maybe taking a knee is the right thing. Um, he's he's on the bench. Um, he's a super sub. Um, he's an X-Factor sub, um, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he's got a week off, but he'll be back next week. Um, I just want to talk briefly about the PCB public spot. So we talked before about the South African. Oh, I, and, and I should quickly talk about South African batters as well. Um, but just on the PCB public spot, um, it's a really, really interesting thing if you haven't been following it, but the way that the uh, Pakistani administrators, both past and present, are quite happily just launching into each other with graphics on Twitter <laughs> which are of one thing, with leaks to the press, with getting certain journalists who are friendly on either side. And I know there are actually politics involved in this as well, not just um, cricket politics. But... It does feel to me one of the first times we've really seen a cricket administration fight become much more like a modern political fight. I can't think of too many other situations uh, where I've seen those before. I thought it was a quite remarkable situation, but it's not. I don't think any of this is that surprising because I suppose with Bangladesh, India, 
Pakistan, and Sri Lanka, there's already a political element uh, more so than some of the other boards. Not that some of the other boards don't also have political elements as well, but more so than some of the other um, boards. And that is the way that modern politics is going. But to see a cricket administrator literally put up a a graph comparing their achievements with someone else's and then another one leak out the um uh, the amount of travel that the other person did or the cost of their travel that they did it just feels very uh, you know modern modern politics and we have seen the sort of backroom politicking before in cricket and look you know I've had the you know uh, BJP trolls be upset at me when I've um, upset uh, them over whichever politician it was that is involved in cricket administration has said something wrong. Um, so it's not that I'm you know, and not to mention you know Sri Lankan cricket, of course, where the sports minister has to sign off on the team, right? Uh, Peter Chingoka at um, in Zimbabwe was maybe the best one as well as when it comes to political interference. But even then, it's just interesting the way that it's moved even more into a political type thing, which is a terrible, of course, state of affairs for cricket. Um, but it is very interesting to watch that power struggle play out in Pakistan um, uh, from that perspective um, and see how uh, and see how things um, go from there. Um, uh, and the other thing I just want to mention, so the three, I'm doing a piece, that there'll be a video up tomorrow on the uh, 2022 review, which will also be up as a podcast a couple of days after that. Um, uh, I will be doing a video on the Nisa catch and I'm doing something uh, quite big on Chris Green as well because I think it is a really interesting story. And the other one I've been looking at quite a bit is South African batters. And I think it's become quite trendy to suddenly notice that they're not very good when they haven't been very good for a very long time. It's funny how when you go and play a mate or a couple of major teams in their, in their case and suddenly uh, you know England and Australia realise you can't bat and things change a little bit in the narrative of how people start to talk about the team when I think for a lot of us we have seen for quite some period of time that this is a team that's been struggling. But the the other interesting thing that I just wanted to mention that I don't think I don't think that many people really know that batting in different nations is very very different and I I don't mean from a technical standpoint which you all know anyone who's on this channel is going to know but just on a batting average point you know Australia and India do seem to dominate the sort of batting legends conversation after World War II quite a fair bit. Um, and they are, happen to be the places where the batters have the best averages anyway. So not just the best players, but even the worst players have the best averages in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, sorry, Australia and India. Whereas South Africa and England, who are both, their batters have both been hit quite hard recently, um, talking about how they have poor batting lineups. Obviously, and England have managed to, you know, pole vault themselves out of that situation. Um, but, but from that perspective, you do see how um, the fact that playing in South Africa does lower your overall batting. Now, if you grew up in those conditions, it shouldn't be as bad. Although, all those markers, I think, are worth mentioning. But in a in a point of history where the batting average has dropped quite significantly and quite significantly against fast bowling. And South Africa have a bad crop of players. It's very it's very easy to say, well, they don't have any good batters, and I'm more than happy to agree that that is true because uh, you look at their first class numbers, and it's not the case. The tricky thing is, and I wrote about this when England were really struggling with the bat in Test cricket as well. Is it's actually hard to tell how bad they are. It's not quite a simple um, 
uh, arithmetic because they already have depressed averages compared to some of the other nations. And then in those two particular cases, you're talking about something that affected batting in test cricket predominantly against seam bowling, which in England and South Africa is you know, kind of the bread and butter bowling as well. So it's a really interesting thing when we're talking about South African batters of trying to work out how bad they actually are compared to um, the other batting lineups in the world. I mean, it does feel very Dean Elgar a busk, a, busk, a bust all time. So I think that's fair. Um, I've got about another 10 minutes left uh, that I could uh, chat. So if anyone is on YouTube at the moment and wants to ask any questions, um, feel free to ask them. I see that a couple have come in. So I'll answer one from Avi. And then if anyone else wants to put one below, I'll see if I can get to that. Um, Avi says, South Africa will leave behind the 100, the BBL and the PSL. So I understand the thought process behind this, but I'm not sure that that is 100% true because they're never going to be able to make that much money from their market. And if they don't have Indian players in that particular market, and they might, of course, but if the IPL owners ever got their hands on the 100 or teams in the 100, it would be a far bigger league. So at the moment, at the SA20 might have a bit of an advantage because of the players that it's got um, there. But in the long run, when you look at the audiences and you look at the, um, you know, what you can charge fans for shirts, what they're doing is uh, I think that the more important one from the IPL owners, you know, buying big stakes in leagues is major league cricket in the USA for the same, for the simple reason that even the soccer league over there, which by the time the soccer league sprung up, you know, football leagues, right. Um, including on, you know, North America and South America, your Central America and South America, so in similar time zones. And yet, you know, I think the uh, per year Major League um, Soccer is worth $250 million. Major League Cricket is going up against a bunch of leagues that, you know, the 100 is very, very new. Even these older leagues like, you know, the CPL and, and, and the Big Bash and the PSL are actually reasonably new. So I would have thought that the the bigger league, it's, it's funny that you haven't mentioned the major league, the major league could be the one that has the bigger bounce than um, South African league anyway from that perspective just because there's more money. The South African league is going to be a, sub, you know, a subordinate league, whereas the PSL is going to be interesting because that really depends on what Pakistan's future is um, as a sport-watching country as much as a country itself and, um, and everything else. Um, Big Bash, I don't know. It, I, I kind of feel that the Big Bash will be the last of the major leagues that doesn't have private owners. Everything I've heard about English cricket is that there's a very big chance that the 100 will. I'm not saying it's going to happen in the next five years, but, I, uh, but yeah, just because of the markets and everything else, um, I, I really believe that uh, South Africa will leave behind those other leagues. It might in the short term, but in the long term, I just can't imagine it will. Uh, thanks, Avi. Uh, just see. No workload management in the IPR. We want them to play all matches. See, I think this is this is the other thing. I've, if we get to a point where players are rested at this stage in the IPL, again, I'm thinking as an owner, because they're the most important people in this particular phrase outside of the fans. But if you think about it as an owner, one of the things of bilateral cricket over the last couple of years that perhaps hasn't worked as um, is players resting, um, you know, and it's not this is not just a thing in cricket, of course, you know, the, the perennial conversation in basketball is about load management. Um, it, it, you know, it's occasionally it comes up as a question in some other sports as well. Um, and, but, but yeah, from that perspective, uh, do you really want the IPL to be a league that has that problem now? 
eventually the IPO will have a load management resting um, rotation issue for a couple of reasons. One, I think as we work out more about fastballs, I think fastballs will play game on, game off, game on. The reason is that eventually the IPO will get to a point where we will have 30, 40, 50 games in a year. Maybe not that many, but we will go over 25. And you know who knows how far the IPL can move. At that point, players will start to get rested a lot more. Why would you, if you owned a franchise now, would you want to rest it? And why would you want it to be like international cricket where you know your best players are not available in every game? Um, I can't imagine that the if I was an owner, that that is something I would like. And from a fan perspective as well, like there are a lot of people now who are caught up in IPL in a way that they think IPL is their major form of cricket. And the IPL kind of sells itself that way, right? And it's a very, very interesting thing going ahead. It divides and uh, it, from a brand and marketing point of view, it's a really, really interesting issue. So I, it'd be, I, I think some owners might do it and some owners might not, but it'd be really interesting to see how it plays out in the season itself. Success Value says, did you talk about Baba's declaration? I haven't, actually. That should have been on my notes, actually, because I, I wanted to write um, a piece on it, maybe even do a video on it, but I'd, kind of the moment has passed here. I looked at it in a different way than other people did in that maybe because uh, I watch more first-class cricket than most people, but to me it had the very strong feeling of a first-class cricket declaration, and I don't know how many people – um, still watch first class cricket, but if you watch first class cricket and test cricket, and I've always said this, first class cricket is so much more exciting sometimes, just because generally you have the the the, the one less day, sometimes two less days, I suppose in the old days, and it meant that teams had to factor in things like declarations and strategy and how quick you batted, all those sorts of things were a big part of it. And, you know, you see things like Australia, Australia, New South Wales played Victoria one time. I can't remember how many runs Victoria needed on the last day, but I feel like it was close to 500 runs in the, um, and Victoria just went with it because if Victoria lost that first class game, A, it's just another first class game and they get to play another one in the next week. And B, they were miles behind anyway, and they were going to have to bat for whatever it was, the best part of a day. And David Hussey, I think, made a double hundred, um, absolutely slaughtered the New South Wales spinners in, and, and Victoria won. That's not a one-off, right? You see that a lot. And on top of that, you see a lot more contrived results as well, where sort of the two captains get together and they're like, look, you need a win, I need a win, what can we do here? Um, and so from that perspective, I kind of thought that that's what Baba was doing. and. What I wondered was whether this was the first first class first first the first first class kind of um, declaration that we've seen in the World Test Championship, and I didn't want to go back through all the old ones, but I, I did wonder if it was now that it's about points a little bit more and it's about individual games, and they still had a chance at that stage of qualifying for the final, however distant and almost impossible. They were looking at it from that uh, from a perspective of um, wow. We get, you know, it's going to be a draw and we'll get this amount of points. Maybe we can do that. And um, the other thing I thought was from a, the anti, and, you know, most people were on the other side of that declaration, which is absolutely fine. I did find it interesting that Pakistan's tail weren't having, or tail or middle order, whatever you want to call them, weren't having that much trouble on that pitch. And that Baba kind of assumed that the New Zealanders would. And, um, 
you, I think we saw, obviously, you know, that they were going to go a lot harder. We saw Bracewell get um, uh, dismissed quite early on, going very, very hard at the ball. Um, and I did think to myself, I, again, I thought that if that was old-fashioned test cricket, quite, a, I could actually almost have seen why Baba would have done that because in those days, the way that players hit was a little bit more dangerous. But you watch Latham and Conway batting, and this goes back to the way that England bat in test now and England bat in one day cricket we don't talk about this a lot but if you watch what if you get a chance to watch any highlights of games from the 80s or 90s of old ODI games when players put their foot down to swing in those days half the players just went to mid wicket and were swinging across the line the rest were probably playing dead straight no one really could hit over cover unless you were, you know, Javed me and dad, or perhaps, you know, Damien Martin. It was really, really rare. Ravi Shastri was maybe another one. There weren't that many players who could hit over the offside at all at that point. Hitting the hitting uh, boundaries to backward point and opening the face, all these sorts of things didn't exist. Baba should have known of all that, of course. But it was really interesting to me that he was thinking they're going to come out and they're going to swing really hard and that'll give us a chance. And look, we're not that far away from Sydney Thunder being bowled out for 15, so you know, a fair play to him um, from that perspective. But it was really noticeable to me watching someone like Conway, who has a really good strike rate in T20 cricket, how safe he bats um, when he's doing that. And I, and I think that, um, again, uh, you know, it, it made Baba's uh, declaration just not make as much sense because of how quickly and how safely people could score now. It's, you know, it's not as reckless as it once was. Perhaps in the old days, you know, you get a couple of, because the ball was keeping a little bit low, you get a couple of people swing across the line and suddenly you've got a big chance of the game. Um, but yeah, no, I, I thought it was interesting. Obviously, I, I didn't really, unless it was purely um, an idea of, they, you know, we can get the bowl them out in eight overs and they're going to slog across the line. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, but the, the one thing I was thinking about, yeah, was maybe the World Test Championship could actually kick drive test cricket into be that slightly more aggressive um, frame of mind from everyone. But yeah, I, 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 I like that he did it because from a, I, I think the more interesting things we see in test cricket, even the failures um, that the, you know, that format of the game has to evolve as well. And if you look at uh, probably everything, you know, the wobble ball in the way England's played and even the world test championship as flawed, massively flawed as it is existing. I think there's a lot of interesting things going on in test cricket, perhaps that weren't happening um, a while back. And Himat says, uh, your thoughts on expanding cricket like soccer and mixing it up with associate nations because big cricket countries uh, play associate nations only in ICC events. Look, I think the last, what, three or four years when we had the the one-day league, the Super League, you saw a lot more cricket being played. You know, Ireland uh, beat South Africa at home in, in a match. They then went to the West Indies and won that series. You saw the Netherlands really developing their cricketers against the best players in the world. It's a great idea, and I would obviously lo- love to see that. Um, when you're talking about, uh, you know, like like soccer that's not really what soccer does though right so soccer has very few friendlies and what we have in cricket is a huge amount of bilateral cricket and it doesn't necessarily give us enough time for those other things plus those boards are desperate to get as much money as possible you know in those soccer nations or football nations that's not the case in cricket yet (laughs) outside the ipl these leagues are just not making anywhere near as much money as 
um, boards thought they were going to make. So it's a great idea, and obviously I love it when it happens, but I don't see how that's going to happen with your major teams playing anytime soon from that perspective. Um, and I've just got a couple of other quick questions that we'll finish up with. Uh, Avi says, I don't think that the World Test Championship is here to stay with domestic T20 leagues getting bigger and bigger. I don't think there's any reason to get rid of it, though, until you know tests completely drop off. At the moment, I think what well, Sri Lanka and West Indies are playing around 25 tests in a five-year period. That's enough to continue the World Test Championship realistically. Uh, whether it's here to stay or not, it's, it's more a question of whether you know the majority of test cricket is here to stay or not. I, I don't know if you're listening from the top of the episode, Abby. I, I still think there's a lot of money to be made from test cricket. And I think there is, I think there'll be a lot of players. I think what we might get is the best players in the world shuffling um, amongst the best leagues in the world, which means that there'll be a lot of very good cricketers out there looking for other paydays. And uh, as we saw with Chris Green, they might uh, follow the money. I don't think the money is always going to be in T20 leagues because at the moment, there's only one massively pop, uh, more profitable T20 league. Um, and even in these other ones, they might be feeder leagues, but, uh, you know, will, will IPL owners be happy to pay players $2 million to play for the Barbados Royals? Probably not. Right. And so there will be other ways for players to make money going ahead. Uh, last question. Uh, Jake says, would you drop nickels for young? Um, Nichols seems to be coming the weakling in a strong New Zealand batting lineup. N- Nichols is a fantastic fascinating cricketer to me um if you go back jake and i don't i think it's the first most improved players series so when i, I must have done that more 2020 must have been so in the middle of the year it was the first long video essay i ever did in fact and so many people nominated Nichols, and it made sense because he was one of the players on my mind in fact i think going in probably like someone i thought would win the 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 award and then you have a look at it, and he's just had this bizarre career of periods in time where he cannot score a run at all, and periods of time where he looks like one of the world's best players. And a lot of it seems to be about how well he's played off spin at times. There was a there was a period where he was absolutely brutal against off spin, and it it was good against good off spin as well. And it wasn't just in New Zealand or anything like that. And then there was a period where he was averaging. I want to say eight against off spin for like a year or something. It was like made up numbers, um, uh, truly bizarre numbers. And I think I've written about him a few times. Look, I think he's a fantastic player. I like young. Um, they're, they're doing this really interesting thing of like young and, uh, Mitchell where, and I don't know what this is to do with the development pathway of New Zealand cricket, but you can kind of plug Young and Mitchell into like all these different spots. It's almost like they're coming up with ideal backup batters or utility batters. Um, uh, I mean, that's a very Aussie rules football phrase, but you know, the idea that they could kind of, you you could kind of see someone like Young batting anywhere from one to six. I wonder if there's, I think he's a good player, but I wonder if he's as comfortable batting in the middle order. I'd have you know, a deep dive through his first class numbers um, and, and everything else um, to have a look at that. Um, but, but yeah, I, um, I I like Young a lot. I'm not sure he's better than Nichols, I suppose, is one thing I'm trying to say. And I think that, you know, with Mitchell, sorry, I think that with Mitchell and Young, I think they're very, very good sort of as your, maybe your backup opener or your 
number five or six, uh, or maybe number six, maybe. And I wonder if they will be good enough home and away over a long period of time to play in those more key positions, which is what they're asking Nichols to do. And maybe that's part of the other problem, of course, is in, in that case. But I like Young, so I've got absolutely no problem with that. Yeah, just two quick ones at the end. The Outcast says, what do you think of the selection of Mukesh Kumar and the 220 International Squad despite not playing any IPL games? Uh, is it because of injury? Well, it's partly because of injury, but I think they're trying to uh, um, see him out. Uh, I've got no problem with that because you shouldn't just be picking people based on one competition anyway. They should be having a look at them. If By the time you see someone in the IPL, you should have a real idea of what kind of player they are anyway. Um, and I don't know what Indians you know scouting slash selection is like from a professional level these days but you know I, i've got no problem with it kind of happening in both cases where a player doesn't play any other professional cricket and then plays in the ipl and gets picked for india um and also the other way because there's a lot of different information to be able to know i think it would be great for him to play some uh, uh ipl cricket because that will help develop um and it's not you know playing playing for india and learning for India is a very harsh way of, of developing a player. But if they think that there's something there, then get them in the side and have a look at them, especially in this kind of a squad, which is a development squad. And just the last one of Virat Kohli, because why not? Ashwani says, do you think Virat's batting against spin is the weakest amongst Fab Four? There's a period of time for two or three years where I'm pretty sure he was averaging the highest out of the lot of them against spin. And that was playing it also in India for a good percentage of time. Whereas the other three both have all have the advantages of playing a lot of spin in unfriendly spin conditions. I would say that I think Joe Root is the best player of spin in that group. And I would have thought Virat Kohli is the second best player of spin. Now over the last couple of years, he struggled against spin pace, everything. So I may be looking at, the overall arc of his career. Um, but I, I'd be shocked if that was the case, that uh, he was the... I, I like Kane Williamson against Spin. I like Steve Smith against Spin. But I think pound for pound, I think Virat and Joe Root is incredible um, against Spin. And, you know, I know we've talked about it a little bit um, uh, before, and I've probably done a video about it. But, uh, but yeah, he, you know, there's no doubt there that he's um, a fantastic uh, player of spin i think i have him as number one but it is tricky just because you know playing spin when you the majority of your time is not in asia is absolutely nothing like playing spin when the majority of the time is in asia very 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 different and i'd be you know if you could do some sort of experiment to work out who's the best player of spin i'd be shocked if Virat wasn't very close to joe root but certainly slightly above kane williamson and smith not that i think any of those four players are bad against spin in fact it's one thing I think it's a really interesting thing if you go through, especially post-war batters, but this is probably the case if you go back even before the war. I think there are probably a lot of players who are good against pace or good against spin. And when you're looking at the greatest players of all time, you're probably looking at them as being average or above average against one of those disciplines um, and then well above average against the other one. And, and I think that's probably... It's very rare to see a player who's absolutely brilliant against pace and absolutely brilliant against spin because they are very... Anyone who's ever played cricket will tell you when you're sitting there at the crease, they are just completely different ways of playing the game. Anyway, uh, huge uh, um, thank you to everyone who popped up. I know it was a random time and Barrett wasn't um, here and everything else, but, um, uh, you know, we will be recording.
more of these sorts of things live um, and they will sort of pop up. And you, obviously, if you follow me on Twitter now, you can watch them there. And if not, you can always follow them on YouTube. But this podcast will be up um, uh, tomorrow on the uh, on, on the feed there as well. So if you came in late and you missed some of it, uh, you'll be able to see it there. But huge thanks to everyone. Sorry, there were some technical dif- difficulties today. Don't know what was going on there. Uh, but huge thanks to everyone. Uh, as I said, I've got some videos on South African. What? There's a review of 2022 coming up. South African batters is something I'm mucking around with. The the Nisa catch, uh, Chris Green, um, and the IPL review, which I've actually done, but I'm not sure if Muku's got that ready um, just yet to to, uh, be going up, but perhaps probably does. Uh, but that's going up in a couple of days. We just pushed that back because of the uh, the year in review. We wanted to put up a little bit quicker um, because the year just finished and the IPL doesn't start for a little while. Uh, but huge thanks to everyone, and I will see you again on on the many different places that you can see me next time. Thanks for listening to the 99.94 Network. Cricket every day. Remember to download our app or just search for your favorite team at 99.94 where you find podcasts on Google or YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barrett Sundarese is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapayi and Maida Akam producing podcasts and Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account. 